were one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Welcome to Badlands Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! Gotta make the hole bigger. <laughs> I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's gonna come right through the glass. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life Fern! just remembering. One of the things I love most about this life that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. Let's just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. I see them again. And I can be certain in my heart, I'll see you again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new special episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, John. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well, as uh, too. Uh, so today, we were supposed to talk about Takeshi Kitano's 1997 film, Fireworks, or Hanabi, as its Japanese title. Uh, however, we since the Oscars were last week, we decided to kind of take a break from that and we'll resume next episode with our regular 90s uh, Asian film uh, schedule but this year we're decided to do a I mean this year this this uh, episode we've decided to do an Oscars an Oscar special special and talk about uh, the as of the time of the recording last week's best picture winner Nomadland directed by Chloe Zhao uh, which is not strictly an Asian film but since this is a special episode, I guess we're allowed to break the rules. Although the director is of Asian descent, so I suppose that does kind of fit into the theme, I mean, to the the topics usually covered by a podcast. And as I said, next week we'll resume our usual coverage of uh, Takeshi Kitano's film. Uh, however, before we get to the discussion of, uh, to the main discussion of this episode, uh, Jason, what have you been watching or reading in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, so uh, this week I got my first dose of a vaccine. I got the Pfizer vaccine. Cool. And uh, I recently read that it's the vaccine that hot people get. Apparently there's a, a series of memes going around TikTok where uh, people are celebrating getting the Pfizer vaccine and denigrating anybody who gets uh, any other type of vaccine. If I remember correctly, the Moderna was 1% or 2% more effective, but it hardly matters. I think it's the other way around. Oh, is it? Pfizer is ninety five percent effective, and Moderna is something like ninety four percent. That's possible. Have you started licking public toilets again? <laughs> no, that is the and whole point got, of the vaccine. I, yeah, I haven't got a five G signal either. I was really disappointed. Uh -huh. um, I was expecting an email from Bill Gates saying "Welcome to the network," but um, nothing as of yet. Well, they have to record your pa patterns first. 
and then you know the 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 system has to do its thing and then eventually you'll you'll start getting those emails i guess so i mean it would take time to ask google and amazon for all that data <laughs> yeah exactly it was um uh i i've been vaccinated for a couple of weeks and uh Yesterday, I complained about how dry the weather is, and today it rained. So I don't think that is a coincidence. I think that is the the 5G chips listening to my wishes and, and making it rain. Oh, well, if you're getting that sort of service, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to being hooked up to the network. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, in terms of what I've been doing uh, with movies, um, well, I watched Nomadland. It was a... Uh, break from the usual asian movies and uh, i also watched the sound of metal and without remorse uh the two of those are available on amazon prime and they're very good okay uh the sound of metal was also i think it was also nominated for a number of oscars um i think it won was it best sound design uh and it it's really good the sound design um getting uh into the character's experience with deafness um, with tinnitus that was really well portrayed and um, great central performance by Riz Ahmed so that's on Amazon Prime and Without Remorse is a new adaptation of a Tom Clancy novel starring Michael B. Jordan and um, it's a good setup to what looks like it will be a series of action movies, um, special forces various people from special forces around the world going after terrorists, um, that sort of thing. The usual Tom Clancy um, storylines, it seems to me. Yeah, it leads into Rainbow Six. Okay. Um, I also watched um, Out of the Shadows, uh, the Stephen Chow film, which is on Amazon Prime. Oh. Uh, my mother recommended it to me. I, 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 I mean, all the Stephen Chow's films from that era, whether he directed them or he just acted them, the 90s, he was on fire, and I, I, I love all of them. Yeah, I've watched the Fight Back to School trilogy, um, Kung Fu Hustle, um, and Out of the Shadows is probably... Uh, oh, I, The Mermaid as well. I watched that one in the cinema with my mother and sister. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, my mother recommended Out of the Shadows. Um, she said it's hilarious, and it didn't disappoint. It's very funny. Uh, and uh, I played uh, the Resident Evil 8 demo. If you have access to a PC or a PlayStation, or presumably an Xbox, you can get uh, to play the demo for an hour. Um, these are time demos, uh, limited, so uh, I'm not sure if they're going to be still available uh, by the time this podcast goes out, but the game will be available, and it's absolutely impressive. Like, gorgeous setting of what looks to be Romania, um, great enemies, that really terrifying, um, and Great gameplay. It's in first person rather than over the shoulder or fixed camera angle, but very atmospheric. Um, and uh, I also watched um, Along the Sea, a film that was released in Japan on a Saturday, which is about three Vietnamese um, uh, women who have traveled to Japan on a sort of work program and they go on the lam after experiencing exploitation. Um, very good, uh, done with a documentary style and um, non-professional actors in the lead roles. And I also uh, watched and reviewed Koji Fukada's 10-episode drama, The Real Thing. Uh, yeah, that was my week. It's been pretty busy. Yeah, it sounds like a busy week. So I, I had uh, uh, I didn't have a, as a, 
as busy of a week, but I did get uh, watching some exciting things in addition to, you know, uh, Nomadland. And I, I, I try to revisit, uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched parts of it. Uh, uh, Chloe Zhao's previous film, The Rider, which I had seen before, but I just wanted to, to refresh my memory a little bit. Um, I, I've been watching the, ep- the new episodes of the season four of The Handmaid's Tale which is available on Hulu in the U.S. I'm not sure everywhere else, because I don't think Hulu is available outside of the U.S., uh, but I'm sure the, the show has been released in some form or other. Um, it's, uh, it's, the first season of that show was fantastic, and then it's every season since it has been somewhat disappointing, but I just kind of feel like I have to, to finish it. I, I watched, I, re, I rewatched, I, I, I just... I felt like rewatching a bunch of old films that I I hadn't seen in a while. I I rewatched. I'm not sure if, if this was this time or I'm, I don't remember if I mentioned this last time, but it was around that time that I rewatched The Stuntman, a 90, 1980 film uh, directed by Richard Rush. Very very good, very underrated in my opinion. Um, actually not underrated because everybody who's seen it likes it, but it's very underexposed or um, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't it. Doesn't ha- it hasn't received the attention that, in my opinion, deserves. Underappreciated? Underappreciated, maybe, yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> I don't know why I wanted to rewatch some old superhero movies. I watched, I watched the original Superman. Um, I rewatched the original Batman, or not the original Batman, but the, the Tim Burton ba- Batman movies. Mm. Uh, what else? I, I, think, I think maybe that's about it. I'm, I'm probably forgetting something. I, didn't, I, I usually write these down as I do them, but this week I, I forgot to write anything down. Uh, so I'm just kind of going off memory here, but yeah, though uh, that that was, I think, it for uh, my media consumption in these last two weeks. Uh, it sounds pretty good. I uh, can't get too much of Michael Keaton and Tim Burton's Batman. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. the The visual style, I, I, you know, I'm, I can't say that I'm crazy about Michael Michael Keaton as Batman, although I, you know, it, he's fine. I just the visual style of Tim Burton's approach that really. Uh, that I really enjoyed, kind of, you know, sort of almost revived the character, you could say. Yeah, totally gothic approach. Yeah, which was just, you know, like it was almost a, like a a perfect coincidence because it it was his own personal style. He didn't have to compromise his style in order to make Batman, but it just happened that that style would be perfect for the character of Batman. Because, you know, you could argue that, you know, Edward Scissorhands and his other films kind of have, you know, the same gothic approach to them. Yeah. All right. So um, I, didn't, I didn't pay that much attention to news this week to, to jump into our news segment for this episode. But we have a couple of things written down. One thing is um, uh, the Oscars, which we'll talk about in our main discussion, which happened last week as of the time of recording. By the time this episode is released, it'll probably be tweaks behind, but it's still fairly close. Um, and, uh, the second news item, which I think you wrote down, Jason, is the Nippon Connection 2021. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. So Nippon Connection, um, I'm going to have to get the dates up again, but it's going to be partially on, they hope, uh, by the time the festival runs that it's going to be a hybrid one online and also physical. So the dates are... June 1st, June 6th. Um, you've already got like the first round of announcements of films. So uh, Beyond the Infinite 2 Minutes, which from what I've been hearing is a really good um, time travel movie. Um, 
Seven Days War, uh, an anime movie which has been around for a couple of years. I think that's indicative of the fact that it's been a pretty quiet year for anime movies in general. Um, that they have had to pull this one. Um, Under the Open Sky uh, by Miwa Nishikawa, which uh, has won a couple of awards. It stars Koji Akasho as a ex-convict who goes in search of his mother, and it's getting good reviews. Me and the Cult Leader by Atsushi Sakahara. That's already been reviewed on V Cinema, and that sounds really good. Um, Red Post on Escher Street by Sean Sono. Um, that played at Japan Cuts last year, I think, or earlier this year. To the Ends of the Earth by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, um, which I reviewed, and it's on the reviews on V Cinema. And uh, Day of Destruction by Toshiaki Toyoda. So already a good selection of films. And uh, when the festival launches June in June, um, hopefully people will be able to see them in the cinemas as well as online. Uh, yeah, and since you mentioned uh, anime, I mean, nothing has been confirmed yet, but it, it is possible that at the end of 2021 or maybe beginning of 2022, we'll get the uh, the uh, um, Miyazaki's next film, which he's been working for like almost three years now. Hmm. Very likely to be his final film, although he's, uh, there's many films that, ha- that were supposed to be their, his final films and they just never happened. So Yeah, I The s- Wind Rises. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Although he is getting pretty old, so it you know there's higher. Of course, if he has the energy in him, he'll will make another film after this. We have no idea. I don't even know what the title is going to be, what the subject matter. I mean, there uh, Studio Ghibli is very good about you know not leaking information, uh, and quite, which kind of makes sense because Miyazaki is essentially the person in charge, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care about marketing in any sense of the world. The word, <laughs> uh, but. Um, but yeah, I would be looking forward to it. I remember, I remember I watched a documentary about it. Well, about it was a documentary about Miyazaki, and I feel, I feel like at the either at the end or the beginning of the documentary, the producer said, uh, "Please be patient. Uh, uh, the new Miyazaki film will be ab- out in about three years," <laughs> which is a which is a terrible. Like I don't think any other many, there are many films who are announced three years before. Uh, ahead of time uh, but uh, I mm. think that documentary and I actually I saw that in theaters was uh, about three years ago maybe two and a half years ago so that's what I'm saying maybe at the end of 2021 we will actually see uh, the the new Miyazaki film which I, I would be I'm looking forward to a lot it'll certainly be a, an event because it, um, all indications seem to suggest it may be Studio Ghibli's last film yeah I mean it's which is, makes sense like a lot of people uh, think uh, have have the wrong impression about Studio Ghibli or Ghibli, however you pronounce that. And we apologize to listen for the digression, but there's it's um it's not it's not a film studio in the traditional sense of the word of the of the word or or you know how a normal film studio is run. It was literally created just to service two filmmakers, Miyazaki and um um Takahata Takahata and you know one of them died and the other one is about to retire so it's there's the, the its purpose that it serves no purpose of course it has released some other films over the years like the one the couple ones by Miyazaki's son which was you know uh, you know special circumstances but it's not it's not a studio that is you know that functions like a traditional studio that f- works in the same way it was a studio that they hire talent and they produce films and everything it was just it is just a, a a means to an end, and that end is Miyazaki and Takahata films. Yeah, 
so it's it's completely understandable that you know once Miyazaki retires, the studio has no reason to go on existing. Uh, of course, they 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 could make money out of their existing IP, but it doesn't seem to me like they'll do that while Miyazaki's alive. Maybe after he dies, who knows what the studio will do or the people who will end up with a owning the intellectual property will do. But for now, I just don't see them doing anything else. Indeed. All right. So once uh, that is out of the way, uh, we might as well jump into our main topic of discussion for this special episode of Heroic Purgatory, uh, discussing the this year's Best Picture Oscar winner, Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao. So as usual, Jason, would you like to give us a plot summary for the film? So, um, based on Jessica Bruder's non-fiction book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, Nomadland tells the story of Fern, a recently widowed woman in her 60s who has financial troubles. She decides to leave her longtime home of Empire, Nevada, following the closure of the mine that has sustained the local community. Uh, she heads out into the wilderness in a van she is kitted out to be her new home, and moves across the American West from Nevada to South Dakota hopping from casual job to seasonal job, whatever will get her by. It is by doing this that she meets other old-timers who are also van dwellers, people who regard themselves as not homeless, but houseless, and living a nomadic lifestyle in their vehicles. All right. So I had seen this film, I do this every year when the Oscars are uh, are approaching, where I try any films that I have not watched. Usually I'd watch these before as they come out theatrically, but... Uh, this year it was just that it was impossible, so I kind of rushed to watch them. And I didn't watch all of them. I did. I watched fewer Oscar nominees this year than any other year before, uh, but I tried. Uh, but my understanding is that this was you just watched this film. Yeah, it's uh, very recent. Um, I don't pay attention to the Oscars much these days, um, and my consumption of American films is usually limited to older ones or um, genre cinema as opposed to big award winners. Well, there's a lot of British films that make it to the Oscar too, so... Yeah, I've well, British films fall into the same category for me, oh, uh, to be okay, honest. Okay, okay. There was, there was a period of time when I would deliberately go to the cinema to see as many British films as possible to try and support the industry, but um, my interest has faded over the time. Yeah, I, again, again, to digress a little bit, I do like to keep up with you know the state of cinema today and usually that is relegated to asian cinema because you know we uh, we both both you and i have a reason to do that but i do like to keep it and i do like to follow words even if it's if i don't have a chance to watch the films like i will follow who wins the venice film festival prize which is how we you know the world was acquainted with this film and you know who wins the Cannes film festival prizes and wins the berlin and the top you know the top festivals in the world and i usually will you know, it's not unless you are a complete, unless you completely ignore the film industry, you kind of get a good impression of which ones are the Oscar buzz films and which ones are probably not going to get any any tra- any uh, any attention at the Oscar. So this was so it's and it, you know for those reasons I I do like to keep up because it's just you know it, it's a good way to stay current with a state of cinema and. And I guess that's how I justify, you know, trying to keep up with the whole thing. Uh, but I, it seemed this year, like I made the, uh, in the case of Nomadland, and just to point out how different this year was, I did make, when I mentioned it in this show, in our What Have You Watched Recently segment, 
maybe two or three episodes ago where I said I did watch Nomadland. Uh, or I don't know if I mentioned that on the air or if I mentioned that in a private conversation that we had over Twitter. I don't remember exactly. Maybe both. But I did say that I thought it was the best, it was the best film of 2020 with an asterisk that I have not seen that many films in 2020, or at least many English language films in 2020. Um, and rewatching it now that I've seen a few more, especially a few more of the Oscar contenders, I will still maintain that this is probably the best film of 2020. And again, I have not seen that many films of 2020. And maybe 2020 has not produced that many films that would be serious contenders to Nomadland. But I would like to hear where you stand on Nomadland compared to, you know, just on its own and compared to every, anything else that you might have seen in 2020. On its own, it, it's a very fine film. Um, I think it gives a very good insight into um, sort of the nomadic lifestyle in America and van dwellers, the lives of van dwellers. Uh, and the performances were good, especially from the non-professional actors. Uh, very moving. And um, it touched upon um, themes such as loneliness uh and uh memories that i found quite moving um i was aware that it took it had uh scenes set in like amazon workshop uh amazon um warehouses and um they weren't as in depth as some reviewers wanted them to be so when i watched the film i wasn't too disappointed about that i just saw it as a picture of um uh, one woman's nomadic lifestyle um, and dealing with her past. I was very curious when I watched both times that I watched this film if they had to get Amazon's permission to to kind of show that because I doubt that. I mean, that was probably a set. I doubt that was actually filmed in an Amazon warehouse, although it is possible because the director likes to take these realistic approaches. But I, I you just, <laughs> I, I guess I did. I could have looked it up. Maybe this information is available. But I wonder if they had to take it to take Amazon's. Uh, permission to do that because he wasn't particularly critical of Amazon. He was, it seemed fairly normal. He wasn't showing any of the infamously bad conditions that Amazon has been accused of uh, regarding its workplaces and all that. So yeah, like like we've we're watching this in the aftermath of like the union drive, which Amazon thwarted, and watching the workplace in the film, it seems uh, not too bad. No, and this was, and again, I, I, I don't know how long, because uh, Amazon, this was 2011. So Amazon was a giant, but it was not the giant that it is today. I think 2011, the Prime program was a fairly hmm. new thing. I don't, I, I don't remember exactly what year it started. Maybe, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak out of turn. But uh, I think, I think per, it is possible that the conditions in Amazon, uh, when it was still a very much growing company, huge, but, but you know, still there, it's, it still had ways to go. So perhaps he was accurate for the time being, although it's certainly not accurate by what we know today. Right. Oh, and this is before Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez managed to get Amazon to start paying a minimum wage, right? Uh, a $15 did they, minimum did, wage. Did they achieve that? I, I know that there was a drive. I don't know that they achieved that unilaterally on, on all Amazon stores. So, but yeah, it's, it's possible. It, it could be just bringing attention to the fact that there wasn't minimum wage, $15 minimum wage. Yeah. Forced Amazon's hand. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, other 2020 movies, like I said, I've watched uh, 
um, The Sound of Metal, and um, like maybe a couple of other films. And uh, I would say it's uh, Nomadland is is a very very worthy winner. Um, Universal Themes brilliantly shot, um, great performances. Um, it's it speaks of the life of now, you know how people live now. And I think it will resonate with audiences across the world. Yeah, and uh, this is the third, the third feature film from the director, I believe. Um, I, I don't know. Have you seen any of the previous ones? No. The only time I've even thought about Chloe Zhao is when we've been talking on the podcast, and um, you've mentioned about watching her previous films. Yeah. So I haven't seen her first film. I've seen clips from it. Uh, but I, I saw her second film, The Writer, on the on the cinema in 2017, I believe. And it was one of those films that it was praised as a very good independent film, but it kind of flew under the radar. And I suspect this one would have also flown under the radar, the radar, had she had it not been from Frances McDormand being, you know, the the lead actress. Um because I, I, I have a hard time seeing this film as gaining the mainstream attention that it has without without its lead actor. But I, I wanted to point out, uh, I mentioned this to point out what, or to reiterate on what you mentioned about the non-professional actor, uh, that it is a uh, something that the director has done in all her films so far. Uh, however, I do think that it works much better in Nomadland than it did in her previous films, especially the writer where it is the main cast, that it is all non-professional writers, and it is, um, uh, it is, it is the actual, it's about, uh, the writer is about this uh, rodeo writer, essentially, who suffered brain damage after an accident, and he's trying to get his life back together, and it is the actual person in his family who, to whom that happened to, that is starring in the film and telling his own story, and I just, again, beautifully shot, uh, with some very nice countryside uh, cinematography and all that, uh, but I just didn't didn't think some parts of that worked very well. And whereas I think Nomadland, because the the non professional acting is delegated to more minor roles, not that they do a bad job, like you said, they do a pretty good job. But I still feel like it is it is it is better managed because Chloe Zhao is not the first director to do that. Like um, I'm thought I'm reminded of. Um, What's his name? Ken Loach, a famous British uh, director. Uh, pretty old now, but he's been making films since the 60s. And he does that a lot. He uses professional and non-professional actors, and he improvises a lot in his films. Uh, and, you know, he does that fairly well. And I think, I think Chloe Zhao has also achieved that effect pretty well in here. But I think it works because the non-professional acting is kind of relegated to the supporting roles. So you can still have that the effect of having a very talented lead actor, you know, carrying most of the scenes. And I think uh, France McDormand is in every, literally every scene she is. It's, it's a film about her. Uh, so we get that, that cushioning effect of her great performance. And we also get the non-professional actors who do kind of stand out. Like you can, they're like the, the guy, Bill, Bob Wells or whatever. He's, he's, he's a, he's a YouTuber or that's how he's famous for it. And he, he does sound like if you watch these YouTube personalities, he does sound like you YouTuber the way he speaks, the way he's performing and all that. And some of it is performance. Some of it might be actually real speech that he would have given. 
And I think it stands out. And I think the fact that they are not at the center of the films like some of her other, some of her previous film, uh, I think it works very well in this, uh, in this, in this, uh, in Nomadland. Yeah, there's a definite sense of um, character arc and structure to the story. And um, Francis McDormand um, goes through, um, you know, forgive me for the term, but uh, a journey as um, she learns to let go of her past and um, face a sort of uh, wandering in, into the wilderness. Um, so whenever Francis McDormand and David Strafan are in the scene together, you know, okay, <laughs> this is the script taking over. And um, the non-professional actors are, are given sort of sparky supporting roles um, and they're allowed monologues. Um, so there's great placement of uh, the non-supporting actors throughout the film up until the middle point where Francis McDormand takes over entirely and you get the conclusion to a character arc. Yeah, and uh, because of this film, or uh, and because of Frances McDormand and all that, uh, the, the director, Chloe Zhao, the next film that she's doing is The Eternals for Marvel. And, I mean, I'm sure she's a capable director, but I just don't know how that film is going to look. Well, she, didn't she shoot Nomadland as she was preparing for The Eternals? Yes, yes. So, so it was just, you know, while she was shooting, there was a ter- she had just gotten the job for Eternals. But I think she was she already got some fame in with a writer, and then there was this, you know, attention that she got from her next film being uh, this more, not necessarily mainstream, but a bigger production that started a, a huge Hollywood actor like Frances McDormand, which I think allowed her to go e- go in and pitch at Marvel. Uh, because I see, I think that's how she got the job. From what I've r- read and and listened to interviews, that she was among many, you know, new and indie directors that pitched ideas at Marvel, and they liked her pitch about the Eternals better than anybody else's. So that's how she got it. And while she was doing that, she was also shooting, or she had just started to shoot um, Nomadland. Yeah, and like um, uh, just to go on a digression, yeah. I, sometimes it's easy to be cynical about Marvel and how they do things, but they do get interesting directors to come onto their projects. And um, like the next Spider-Man looks like it has potential. They do, but they don't let them express themselves. It's still filmed by a committee. Like the the films, which is, I think works, I think it's the right choice for the franchise, but it, it also seems to me to defeat the purpose because they don't conform their films, or at least the ones that I've seen, they don't conform their films to their directors. They make the directors conform to their style. Like like with Taika Watiti, who who came who who made these very promising films in New Zealand and you know we came came to made the Thor movies and you know the, like uh, people loved that Thor movie but it didn't seem to me like it was a Taika Waititi film it looked nothing like the films that he did it would look like another Marvel film although a well made Marvel film I don't I don't have any anything much negative to say about that but it seemed to me that it was you know any any good director could have done that I think and maybe maybe I'm wrong about that so I don't know I misspoke earlier. It's not the next Spider-Man movie. It's the next um, Doctor Strange, which has Sam Raimi, who directed the '90s Spider-Man. The two- early 2000s Spider-Man. The early 2000s, yeah. So, like, it's a case of hiring a director who's got the perfect style for the franchise for the franchise right there. Yeah, and they did. I mean, they did hire like like you know they and and this is evident when they hired. Um... 
what's the name of that British director who did uh, the trilogy, Hot Fuzz and uh, Shaun of the Dead? Oh, um... Uh, Edgar Edgar Wright is that his name? Edgar Wright, yes. Yeah. So I mean, he he was hired for Ant Man because of his style, and he just couldn't do it. He quit, or you know, the tension got so high that he was fired. One of the two. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember what the story was exactly. But it was that that you know, Marvel hires these directors, and I hope they don't do that with Chloe Zhao. Although we haven't heard anything too bad yet, because these rumors would usually leak. So maybe she was able to get some of her style in it. Uh, but you know Edgar Wright just couldn't do it. He just he, they just asked him to conform way too much to to the Marvel style, and he was just his personal thing was lost. And I think that's what Marvel does with a lot of the, the directors. And then again, I'm not I'm I don't care if directors do that because Taika Waititi, uh, you know, got whatever job he got the Marvel, and he with when he, with that you know money and without clout that he got from them. He was able to make the film that he wanted to, which was Jojo Rabbit. And whatever you think, some people like that film, some people don't like it, but it was a film that he wanted to make, that he'd been trying to make for years and he couldn't. And even if Chloe Zhao is doing that with with The Eternals, even if he is intentionally drowning her own style to conform with Mar- Marvel, I'm not, I'm not saying that as a criticism because it is, you know, sometimes in the film industry was, that's what you have to do. You have to, you know, you make one for you, I'm going to make one for you, and then I'm going to use that those bonus points that I gained from just working for you and following the rules to make my movie. And and if she's doing that, then great for her because, you know, now she's going to be able to make even better movies like Nomadland or even better. Yeah. I totally forgot that um, Edgar Wright was on Ant-Man. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I don't, who knows what happened. There could be, a, there could be a million reasons why that partnership didn't work out, but the usual of the word is that he just couldn't, there was artistic differences basically, which is the, the, the polite way of saying that they didn't, they didn't agree on how to make the film, the, the film. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see what, uh, Chloe Zhao goes on to make after the Eternals and what the Eternals turns out like, because the, the Marvel universe is completely diametrically opposed to the tone of, um, Nomadland. Yeah, and and I'm not a, a comic fan by any by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I my understanding is that the Eternals is somewhat separate from what Marvel has been building up to now. So maybe there is that room for experimentation. Although knowing Marvel, they'll still want to tie it to their larger cinematic universe, so they can't uh, they won't allow it to stray too far. But perhaps the nature of the Eternal storyline will allow her to um, maybe put some of her own identity into the film. Indeed. Like, you know, like, uh, again, just to give more examples of similar things happens when Alfonso Cuaron, the Mexican director, who has also a very unique style, he, you know, he was known with by these indie movie, uh, indie films, uh, uh, this Mexican... Amores Peros? Yeah. Oh, no. Was that him? I don't think that was him. Um, he did E2 Mama Tambien. He did the, oh, he did um, Harry Potter films. Exactly. So he did the third Harry Potter film, but he, and they, but he was able to inject some of his independent style into the Harry Potter franchise. So the third Harry Potter film was significantly different from the, from the, it was still, it still had to conform to a certain, to certain standards, but he, his own style was not completely erased. And in fact, his style became so prevalent that the the subsequent the 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 Harry Potter films that followed kind of took from him a little bit. 
So it, like so again that that's still a possibility even for big franchises. Uh and if it's not and even if she has to conform, you know, maybe her next film will be even better because she will have that that possibility now. Yeah. Okay, so um moving moving on to to the Nomadland discussion. There was I like I said I I mentioned that uh, Nomadland was I, I I thought was the best film of 2020. Uh, but the the standard was relatively low, uh, or at least the bar was relatively low given the year that we've been through. But there was something both in the first time I watched this film and the in the most recent watch in preparation for this episode. I I was trying to find flaws with the film and I couldn't. The film is you know almost perfect in every way. Yet there was something about it that that it just didn't. That just didn't sit right with me, and I think, and I'm not, I'm still not sure exactly what it is, but I think it has to do with this, what I perceive to be an over romanticization of the this nomadic lifestyle that the film just edges onto it a little bit, and I don't know if you, if you, if you saw that too, or if there's just something that is just I'm, I'm just reading into the film that is not there. I at times like if you sit and think about the concept that you've got 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds out on the road living a precarious lifestyle with little security and going from job to job. It's 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 a horror movie. <laughs> it's an economic horror movie. Exactly. Like That's the generation that should be retiring in comfort. That's what we're all told. And they've been let down so badly. And there's a real sense of isolation. Uh, in the film, uh, Frances McDormand's character Fern, she goes through troubles, um, but they're not dwelt upon. And um, although there's a sense of um, they're serious, um, the life and death aspect of it isn't explored too much. It's it's something that's solved or gone past maybe a little too easily. Like if you're in the a snowy state and people are saying you could freeze to death. It, it should there be more made of that fact like a person traveling in a van like they, they could die out, out, overnight so it seemed like it softened it, it didn't it didn't go too far into um exploiting sort of like the darker aspects of uh, li- uh being a van dweller exactly uh and you know i I, this the film starts with a 2008 crisis, and it looks like a lot of a lot of the people that ended up being van dwellers. It is implied that the, that 2008 crisis. The film is set in 2011, I think, 2011 to 2012, that range. So, so there's definitely so definitely most people that are have ended up as van dwellers. It is implied strongly that it were for financial reasons. Yet all of them in the film seem to have these. The financial hardship was mentioned. And in fact, Bob Wells gave a speech about it. But it, again, it seemed to most people wanted to justify it with with other reasons, like you know, I I want to be this road warrior or I want to be this this adventurer. I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a in a uh, you know in trying to make ends meet and work a menial job and all that. So, you know, so, like my friend Bob, he worked in an office all his life, and he didn't get the chance to take his boat out on the water. Exactly. Yet. And and this is just could be, and I I mean no disrespect to the people that do it. And and you know, 
but I do, I, I, I get the impression, and this just could be my cynical, you know, typical young man who has, who, who's living, I'm by no means rich or anything like that, but I, you know, I'm, I'm single, I'm living a comfortable life and all that. So maybe, maybe I'm just, I'm incapable of seeing their attempt, but I, I do get the impression that, that a lot of in, in real life, a lot of people who are actually van dwellers would not, are not so by choice. Whereas the, the, it seemed to me the film made it sound like, especially in the main character, Frances McDormand, which, you know, we can, we can talk about more. Especially in her perspective, it seemed that it was very strongly by choice that he had chosen lifestyle. So it made it seem like it was a lifestyle cho- choice, not a consequence of economic hardship. You, you do get the one character, Linda May. Um, she's the one that works with Boone in the Amazon warehouse, the first sort of uh, real van dweller that we meet, where she talks about um, contemplating suicide and uh, looking at her pension, and she's only getting $500 a month. And um, he, and it's it's like it it gives you a sort of like glimpse into what happens when a person just doesn't have financial stability how they're thrown out into the world yeah exactly so it does especially the first half of the film it it definitely gives you these glimpses of yes it is financial hardship because the film literally starts with the typical you know the typical the a film like like I mentioned Ken Loach who who a lot who makes whose entire filmography is about social criticism and and you know condemning capitalism and all that and it the film does start with that typical premise that oh the factory closed down it didn't care about the 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 hundreds of jobs that it lost and now these people have no other recourse and there's this financial crisis uh that that is going on and and it 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 gives you glimpses of that and then there's all these characters we get you know Linda May like you said you know he just couldn't make couldn't make ends meet with her pension so she had to resort to this kind of life but then later on the film goes to undermine every single one of those points for instance in the in terms of fern she has opportunities to escape that lifestyle and she chooses not to and even linda may we hear this is almost like a throwaway line when they're sitting at a bar and she says i have this land that i'm going to build on so she's it seems to me that if you're a landowner I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a landowner, so I have no idea how much advantage owning land gives you. But she talks about owning this land. She wanting to build this self-sufficient home in it. So it's definitely, it's definitely this environmental consciousness of her that she she wants to imbue. But it it also takes away the financial, at least part of the financial hardship that she doesn't really have to live like like this, or not necessarily if she owns land, she could potentially profit off that land and perhaps make. Unless it's a completely useless land, I, I, I don't really know. Like I said, I, I have no idea how much of an advantage that would be. But it sounds to me like at least part of that initial premise of financial hardship is undermined by that statement. I, I think Linda May also says she's got two daughters as well. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, Fern has a sister who's pretty well off, and it looks like her sister is willing to help her. Although it, you know, it does seem like you know, I can understand her choice not to live with her sister and to. Uh, that whole about the theme of independence that she's after. And we learn a little bit more about her history, how she's always had this adventurous spirit about her. I think that's where you also get like a, a glimpse of another glimpse of the 2008 financial crisis because Fern's brother in law convinced her and her husband to invest in new property just before the, it seems like just before the housing bubble burst. Oh, you mean. You mean uh, Fern and her husband? 
Fern's brother-in-law, um, the one married, uh, um, when she goes to visit her sister, there's the, the conversation, a barbecue, a conversation, and um, there's a moment where uh, they, um, the men are talking about um, how the housing market always ends up on the upside, and Fern says, well, that's not always true. Um, you convinced me and my husband to um, invest all of our savings in property we couldn't afford. I didn't get that. I think she says you convince people. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe that's what she meant. Maybe that she meant that as a backside remark uh, accusation. But I, I, I missed that detail because she, she says it in general. I think she says it in third person where you convince people to invest in, in property they can't afford. But maybe she was talking about her and her husband. Uh, she does say that in general, and I'm sure she says, uh, she says it in, with, with regards to herself and her husband as well. Okay, interesting. I, 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 I must have missed that detail. But yeah, that would make so much sense as to the, the, maybe the disillusionment that she feels with this entire lifestyle, with you know the, your your American dream lifestyle, so to speak, and also like the sense that she can't stay with her sister. Yeah, but again, not to to, to kind of belabor on this point, but she does have an opportunity a little later in the movie. To, to stay at a place with no strings attached, where, you know, it still satisfies her adventurous spirit because that's exactly what she did with, with her husband. She went into this middle of nowhere place because her sister accuses, accuses her of being always looking at what's on the other side or something like that. I forget, I forget the exact words that she uses. But she still, she has this opportunity to live with Dave's character, uh, David Stratham's or however the actor's name is. And she just can't do it. She's, we get the impression that she is, has this damaged personality. And, and that's another thing that I'm quite not sure what to make of it. But it's just that she has made this commi- commitment to be a, a van dweller or a nomad. It is just for either symbolic reasons or just psychological reasons. She just can't. Or moral reasons. Who knows? She's completely rejected a, a normal lifestyle. And she just needs to needs to she can't even sleep at night inside a bed she's so so far committed to that lifestyle and i wasn't quite sure what to make of that that's that's what i meant part that's what i'm sort of thinking when i say i think the film kind of undermines the financial hardship of stuff because it just her characters especially the main characters so deep into the nomadic lifestyle that they become incapable of a what we consider quote unquote normal normal lifestyle yeah, that's the details her sister gives about wanting to flee the family as soon as possible. Uh, and then you get the final shots where she want, um, she's driving off into the wilderness. It's kind of like never um, fully addressed why she wants to do it. Um, it's just part of her character. It harkens back to sort of like um, the early American pioneers. Maybe uh, she's inspired by that. We just don't know. Yeah, uh, but again, that's part of like what I, uh, what I, I I find somewhat objectionable about the film, uh, and I will uh, I will apologize to our listeners for for the phrase that I'm about to use, but it's it's very close to what my dad would call hippie bullshit, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not. I'm not saying that is you know like a someone who lives a very conservative love lifestyle or anything like that. Far from it, but it still sounds to me like like I said. It's not something that most people would do, and I think the film is trying yeah. to, to imply that a lot of that is it is about the lifestyle, not about the economy. And I'm just 
maybe too cynical to say that eh, I think it is about the economy. I don't think it's so much about the lifestyle for most people, although it is maybe about the lifestyle for Fern. And I do think that the film is not is not trying to make this anti-capitalist statement. I think the film is, tries to, to to look something into the human condition. So that's why I'm not too sour at the film for, for maybe taking that stance in general. No, uh, yeah, I think pe- people are going to take away from this what they want, and there's going to be a portion of the audience, probably people who don't, who've never con- um, encountered too much financial hardship, who might see the romantic side of things. People who've like lived sort of strict lives, and um, they uh, want to be adventurous. But there'll be many more people in the audience who will say, "Actually, we totally identify with like you." there'll be moments where you just run out of money and you, you don't know what to do next or you're you're working um different jobs and you're struggling and um we want more of that aspect of the film yeah exactly and and like, like again i'm someone who has who who is very conscious about the amount of rent that i pay i'm someone that has been at points where you know my my ability to pay rent depends on the next paycheck and if that paycheck doesn't come then Oh, what's gonna what what am I gonna do? And that that is a terrifying prospect to me. Uh, or, or you know, I've lived in terrible apartments or terrible places simply because to pay because the rent is so expensive. And I also know people who have resorted to living in their cars uh, or their vans because they couldn't afford rent. And none of them, and I, you know, I know people I've personally spoken to that have done that and none of them are happy about it so again I'm I'm certainly bringing my own like you said I'm certainly bringing my own personal experiences into into my interpretation or my objection of the romanticism that this film approaches that kind of lifestyle although again I don't think that's the point so that's why I'm, I'm trying not to be too critical yeah. about it I think that it's it's about it's again it's about this exploration of like you said isolation and loneliness and also looking looking at this at at even 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 when it comes about catap- capitalism i think it's looking at this bigger picture thing like bob wells' speech in the beginning that we are slaves of the dollar or however he puts it i forget i forget exactly what he puts it but it's it's a pretty pretty interesting speech that he gives in the in the early in the film the the tyranny of the dollar or something like that all of these people have been expendable. Uh, all of these people are expendable as far as capitalism goes, and um, they've been cast out of society. And there, they have. And Bob Wells is, like he says in the film, he's trying to create um, a, a communitarian vibe where everybody supports everybody else, and that's a beautiful thing. But when you see GoFundMe's on social media for teachers who are still working, but the, Ex- the, exactly the checks the exactly. Uh, covering like rent or food is absolutely terrifying and especially in the u.s where you know like one one health scare and one surgery can you know put you in debt for the rest of your life yeah there's like um american news there's this thing where like there was a seven-year-old girl i think in alabama who needed brain surgery in boston and she was selling cookies to help raise money and it was an astronomical thing and it's it's heartbreaking like and this is probably what a lot of critics uh, and a lot more critical viewers are probably taking issue with. But again, it's more Fern's journey, like um, dealing with isolation and loneliness. Exactly. And, you know, I can see, I can see even from that perspective, I can see how Fern's choices, especially her rejection of a comfortable life, which she has the opportunity to pursue, 
uh, is has to do on a symbolic level has to do with her rejection of being rejecting to be expendable in a system that that you know it just doesn't care about her. Even though towards the end, uh, you know, a part of it is also I got the impression that she's hanging on to her husband's memory, which is kind of kind of almost comes out of the blue. Although it it is somewhat about that throughout the film, although she doesn't talk about her husband as much as she does at the at the very end of the movie. So it, I think from a from a writing standpoint, it does feel a little bit out of, out of the blue, but it, it also kind of makes sense. Uh, but it it you also get that impression that. Somehow, the life that she's doing is a consequence of not being able to to let go of her husband. Like if she settled somewhere, it will be it will be a betrayal to her husband. Like you know, the house and her entire existing in this town that no longer exists, an empire, was this gamble, this very risky gamble that they took with their husbands. You know, they moved from their nice place and where is that? Like California? Where's her sister? Where does her sister live? Uh, it starts off in Nevada and it heads towards South Dakota. I'm not sure where her sister lives, but somewhere in between those. Some nice town, you get that impression. And yes, she yeah, le- leafy pers- suburbs. Exactly. And she leaves that. She takes this giant risk to, to, to go with her husband to this mining town, which eventually gets rid of all of them when the mine closes. And her husband, on top of that, her husband dies of cancer or something, which is presumably cancer... That she, he he may have obtained from working in that place, the gyps, the gypsum or asbestos factory, whatever that was. It was a sheetrock mine. Yeah, which is which you know has the has the correct. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that kind of work, especially in the past, where safety measures are a little bit laxer, there was the, it was a high rate of lung cancer. Oh yeah, mining just takes a tremendous toll on workers and uh, lung cancer. Yeah, exactly. So she took this huge risk with her husband that doesn't pay it off. But then her admitting that mistake and then just settling into another comfortable life, it could feel like a betrayal of her husband. Which I sort of understand that, like I said, from from a from an exploration of the human condition, uh, and and through you know like her her ability to let go of her husband, which in the end. She's able to by giving up all her, uh, all all her all his stuff and going on the road again. I got the impression that I think the film ends with her on the road, if I'm not mistaken. And I got the impression that after she uh, gives up her husband's stuff and goes on the road again, that maybe she's heading to Dave, and now she'd be more willing to stay with Dave in that in his son's house. Although I don't think that the film there's any indication that that's what she's doing. Honestly, I hope I when when I saw the van heading into the mountains, I was like, I hope she's going to Dave for that security. Because, you know that those like that year she spent on the road must have been tough, and Dave offers some stability. So please, please, Fern, just go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, at least go stay with him for some time, and then you know, hit hit the road on the summer, on the on the warmer days. But for the winter, stay with him. Because that would just be, mm. uh, yeah, like it's so in the beginning when she's parking outside that gas station and there's that stranger that says, it's going to be really cold tonight. And I kind of, I hate how the movie doesn't actually show her experience the cold. It just cuts out to the next morning. Like she's, she's smoking the cigarette and, and then like, you know, preparing for the cold and just cuts to the next morning. I just wish the film showed us like, and again, it's, it's what you said in the beginning that the film doesn't go as, as deep into the suffering that this lifestyle 
contains like in the she it does show a little bit so it's kind of it's almost like the film can make up its mind like in that scene where her tire blows out and she's stuck in like the middle of the desert but again the film kind of gives her a way out like swanky is right there and just gives her a ride to the town and she's able to get a tire yeah so it's it's almost like the film just cares a little bit too much about her it, like it you know the, the directors and the writers are not willing to let her suffer as much as she would realistically have if through this lifestyle yeah it, it's like the film's designed to be as perfect and inoffensive as possible while also having some depth exactly yeah which is again I, i'm i'm a little on the fence about because maybe that was the right choice i think i think going through this a lot of a lot of films like to sort of this I think it's called torture porn or whatever people call it, where they have their characters suffer way too much. And I don't, I'm not, certainly I'm not advocating for that. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not, this, this film kind of stands in the middle because it does show Fern suffer sometimes. Like one thing that I, I really felt for her was um, something that kind of emerged in this, in the early 2010s, which was a, a direct, I think a direct consequence of the 2008 crash. And that is the emergence of the gig economy. And we see mm. that with every character that that is shown in the film that is a van dweller, that's how they survive through these, the the gig economy. They just they have no stable job, and they they the only type of employment they can get is the seasonal employments. Like sometimes through Amazon, which is I'm I'm guessing their Christmas seasons, which they require a lot more uh, a lot more work in their fulfillment centers during around the Christmas and New Year season, and then they they have to discard all those employees, and because they're they're contractors they're employed part-time there's they don't have to give them insurance they don't have to um they don't have to sort of give them any sort of contracts to to guarantee them long-time employment you just they just hire them as needed and then they let them go when the the work goes back down again and then sometimes they they work in these touristy restaurants where it's the high season where they need more employees and then they let them go at the low season or other type of construction jobs so again it's it's it, it i think it's one of the best films to actually tackle the emergence of the gig economy and how it affects the lives of these characters. Because even Fern says, I want to work. I like work. And we get the impression that initially she doesn't want to move from that, from the town that she starts in, but she can't find work. So she's, she's forced to move to Nevada to this, to meet Bob Wells and all the others. But even throughout the film, we always see her working. Like rarely she is without a job, but because of the, of the, the nature of the gig economy, we get the impression that she, that her jobs is just barely giving her enough room to survive. Like when a car breaks, she doesn't have enough money to fix it. She has to borrow money from her sister. Yeah, that scene was a, was a surprise because you see her working throughout most of the film and like she doesn't have enough money to cover fixing her van. She's in real trouble right there. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and you know, like I'm thinking of every, every other fern who doesn't have a sister who can provide that that loan to her and you know like we get the impression that all the money that she makes is just enough to cover the gas and food that's it and uh may maybe medical bills from her husband that's never mentioned but it's uh it it's possible that she has medical bills that like debt that she has to pay who knows yeah i uh again yeah it's it's you you hear about the financial crisis and people who lost their homes when the bubble burst, and um, you hear about the gig economy, and to actually see it all interconnected in this film was uh, well done. It's just like the 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 full um, I'm trying to think of the word the full the like all the the difficulties involved in living that lifestyle are uh, are underexplored. 
Yeah, yeah. In in that vein, what do you make of what Fern's character kind of mentions very early in the film where someone asks her, are you homeless? And she said, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. Uh, I think it's like um, a sign of like, she's she's she worked part-time as a teacher. She's very precise with her words. Um, so this is very important. Like um, when uh, homelessness would suggest she has no place in society to go. Um, whereas what she feels is houselessness. She isn't uh, rooted to one spot. She can go anywhere. And that's what she wants to do. And her house is what she, uh, like the thing she carries with her um, and the van itself. That's kind of how I've, I interpret it. Although, again, it's I'm, I'm not 100% clear on it, but it, it has to do with her... The, the her lifestyle being a choice like she's not homeless in that she has nowhere to live she has somewhere to live and it's precisely where she wants to live she doesn't want to live in a house she wants to live in a van yeah like the film does everything to like give the impression that there's community and there's uh, like a support network for all these van dwellers and that that goes to reinforce the sense of isolation and loneliness that Fern feels because whenever you see a, a, a character leave like literally just get in the van and just drive off and Fern's left standing in the desert on her own it's absolutely tragic it's like which is why at the end you just wish her you you will her on to go to Dave and like find a house she can stay in because like she's a she's old she needs to be taken care of yeah and um you know I was looking at the character of uh Swanky in the film and in the film she's mm. she she's dying of uh of a lung cancer that has metastasized and become and you know, everywhere in her body, including her brain, and eventually she dies. However, the real Swanky is also a van dweller, but from what I've read, she's not actually sick. Hmm. So that was definitely a storyline made up for the film, as I understand. But I'm wondering if Bob Wells's story—I don't know if you if you were able to find anything about that. No, uh, no, just that he's a like a YouTuber. <laughs> yeah, and he's sort of popularized this this approach, this this lifestyle. But I'm wondering if his if the story about his son, because if it's not, he's a really good actor in that scene where he's uh, where he's talking about his son's suicide. Yeah, like because these are non-professional actors, I took it that those monologues they gave were based on their real lives. Yeah, but for Swangy, it isn't. So that's 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 why it made me question everything. They're not they're not just not professional actors. They're not actors at all. They I don't think they have any aspirations to be an actor. They're just the real people whose these things happen to or part of these things happen to yeah yeah so i'm wondering yeah i, I don't know it made me not 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 that they, they would make it any less gel, genuine or anything like that but i would just be very curious to know if if his story because swanky's story is not entirely true at least i don't think it is from what i've read but I'd be, I'd be very curious to know if if bob wells's story is any truer or if it's also just a script and he's he's doing a very good job if it is just a part of part of the script and another thing that kind of uh who find a little bit you know from a, from a stylistic standpoint i found it a little bit unusual in the film is when she recites shakespeare or at least i think that's shakespeare it sounded very much like shakespeare which seemed to me a little bit out of place in, in like the, the with the rest of the stylist style of the movie i don't know if you thought the same thing or if you thought that recitation fit perfectly with with you know the the tone of the film i thought it fit perfectly with the tone in the film um she's an English, uh, she's had experience as an English teacher. It's like a part of well, her identity a, uh, that point, she yeah. holds, that she holds onto 
um, that uh, reminds her of a past and who she is as a person. And it's a way to keep herself sane because she's on her own. Like, she doesn't play the radio, so all she can do is sort of entertain herself that way. Yeah, and it's all, I think it also, I mean, it's just, it just the style. I mean, the content fits. I don't, I have no objection with that. But I think it also helps make the point that she's not some, and forgive the expression, white trash that is just living in this. She's a very, you know, sophisticated, educated uh, woman that is, you know, that is, that at least from our preconception and stereotypes, we, that's not the kind of personality that we would associate with a homeless person. But the, the truth is, homeless people in reality come from all kind of backgrounds. In fact, we did talk about a film that kind of uh, has the same, the Tokyo Godfathers in in our Christmas mm. special. And the, I feel like that also has the same the same vibe, where he treats it. It kind of shows the diversity of of all the backgrounds that homeless people come from. And I think this kind of does the same. These are not houseless, however you want to call them. You know, these these are not what we typically think of when we think of homeless people or people who don't have a house or people who are in very in a lot of financial hardship. They're you know people from all all walks of life, educated or uneducated, uh, cultured or uncultured. Just to to use that in in the simplest terms. Uh, so it's it. I, I think it helps establish that that these are not you know we we whatever stereotypes we have about these people. They don't necessarily hurt you, and I did. I did appreciate that part about that scene. Yeah, like uh, you just have to be on Twitter for a couple of weeks to find a story of a teacher living out of their car or something like that, which I don't do uh, very often. But yeah, yeah, I'm trying to avoid Twitter as much as possible these days. <laughs> it's not good for mental health, um, and it's a, uh, good for procrastination. Um, but uh, yeah, like. Um, when you encounter all of these different people and you hear their stories, you like you realize there's a diversity of people and they've all got rich experiences and it's such a tragedy that they've been spat out by the system and forced to live like this. Like um uh, a Vietnam veteran uh who's suffering with PTSD on his own. Um like oh, oh, you've got Linda May who's worked all her life and raised two girls. Uh he, there are all these people with experiences with talents and skills and um that was one of the tragedies in the film. Yeah that that the kind of that scene and that's the first time and the second time that is the like one of the most horrifying scenes of the film definitely hits hard because when she says, you know, I worked on my life and you know, I just can't make ends meet with a ends meet with a pension that they're giving me. And you know, I'm I've worked all my life, even though I'm very young, and I won't have to worry about something like that for a long time. You know, what if like what if that something something like that happens to me? It just seems it's just terrifying to just to think about it to make that connection. And maybe that's why the financial hardship aspect of the film hit me harder than the philosophical. Which the film seems to focus on, and what you said, it seems to under 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 expose or understate the the financial hardship of the film. But those just hit so much harder, at least for me, because it seems like what if I end up like that? Even though I'm I'm doing everything right, as I you know I, I know so many people, not just not only speaking for myself, but so many people who are doing everything right that they think they should be doing. And Linda Mate looks like she did everything right, yet she still ended up in in that situation. Yeah, there's there's so much uncertainty in the world of the film, and uh, it reflects reality. Yes, it's hard. 
But um, just to go back to Bob Wells, it seems like I'm looking at a Vulture.com article and it, he did pour his own grief into Nomadland. So that speech about his son was real. Okay, that's that's good to know. I mean, I wish his son, that didn't happen to him, but at least I understand the, the why that speech sounds so genuine. Mm, I Maybe he gained some sort of catharsis from doing it. Um, it's possible. And I can understand a personality like that. I can understand from an objective point of view. Obviously, I can't. I can't understand what it is like to be him because nothing like that has ever happened to me, not even close. But I can understand it from an objective point of view why a personality like that would reject our quote unquote quote unquote normal lifestyle purely for philosophical reasons because it just it just doesn't it it doesn't matter to him. He he wants to end his life on a different experience, a different set of experiences. Uh, yeah, but that's what we're encouraged to do by the media, even though we're all chained to sort of like nine to five jobs to pursue like life in the wild. And um, it's actually harder to do than the media tells us it is to do. And um, again, it's something that's underexplored in the film. Yeah. Although perhaps bring the level of irony uh, out a little bit, this is a film that is intended to make money by people who are mostly living comfortable lifestyles and who landed the director a very a very comfortable job in in, in her next film so so I, I so cinema as a medium perhaps perhaps falls into the into a little bit of hypocrisy because it's 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 there's that oxymoron almost of you can tell stories about the poor but the whole point of telling the story is so that rich people give you money or or mid, middle class people will give you money yeah, this has to make money as a commercial product. Exactly. So there's there's that that I think that inescapable bit of hypocrisy. But eh, what are you going to do? I mean, all art, no matter how noble, must must survive by commercial means to a certain extent. Indeed. Okay. Oh, speaking of Bob Wells, there's something about him that you know how when you see a person, you imagine the kind of voice that they have, and it's almost never the kind of voice that you imagined. There's almost mm. an imbalance. Bob Wells has the perfect voice for what he looks like. I think it's one of the mm. few people <laughs> in the world that is just not only an amazing voice to listen to when he talks, he's like this, that roundness about his syllables and all that. It's just, I love his voice, but he's also <laughs> the perfect voice for his bearded face. It's just, you look at him and you imagine, this is how I imagine this person sound like. And when he speaks, that's exactly what he sounds like, at least to me. So I thought that yeah. was quite amazing. Fern calls him Santa Claus. He looks like Santa Claus. Exactly. Yeah. He has a very, very wise look about him. Yeah. Although again, it's I wonder I don't I don't think there's any hypocrisy on his part. I think he legitimately lives that lifestyle, believes in it. Although being a YouTuber, he might have a, a decent income uh from 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 that. So who knows? We'll have to check how many subscribers he's got. He's got it says here a eighty fifty million views, so Oh, he! Oh, blimey, Charlie! He must be getting super chats all the time. <laughs> yeah, I I have no idea how YouTube works, but it sounds to me he has he has. I'm looking at his channel. He has uh, 500k subscribers, which is a lot. That is a lot, and people people who do subscribe tend to throw money at um, YouTubers and Twitch streamers. Exactly, and uh, does he have a Patreon? That would be interesting. I don't think so. Oh, he does. He does have a Patreon. That seems. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't. I don't think that. I, I don't think that says anything about his integrity as a person. So I'm. I'm just. I'm just joking. But it. It does. It does sound awfully funny that he has a, 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 a hugely successful YouTube uh, channel. He releases videos regularly every couple of days. It seems, and they seem. You know, the quality of the video seems pretty well, and they look. You know, edited. They don't look amateurly edited. So who knows? And he has a, pa- a Patreon. I just find it funny, but I, I I don't think I don't think there's any hypocrisy in what he actually says and believes. I think he, you know, just because you make money off of something doesn't mean you don't believe in it. So I'm not. I just want to make that clear. But I still think it's a little bit funny. Yeah, it, it's that contrast between seeming to go off the grid and yet being a social media star. Exactly, because if you yeah, if you really go off the grid, nobody would know that you went off the grid unless you make it a point to let everybody know that you've gone off the grid. We can only assume that he plows that money into like the meetings. Yeah, that sounds like a a, a very fair point. But I, I I don't go on social media a lot. But I I I've seen this template of a post so many times where someone announces on social media that they'll be off Twitter of a while and how big of a deal it is. Then a week later they come back and and describe how it was to be off Twitter for a week. <laughs> 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 I don't. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure what to make of that. But I'm just throwing out there that it is a a, a very funny phenomenon to observe. It is. Oh, social media is ruined our age. <laughs> Blame it for everything. Yeah, I mean there are benefits to it, but there's also a lot of downsides to it. Yeah, I I try to use it just for fun. So it's like um, when I when I watch the film or try to keep in touch with friends. Or to do heroic purgatory stuff, um, but like a lot of it is just I try to avoid. Yeah, and it seems like the film is. I mean, this film is certainly set behind. Although social media was very much a thing in 2011, but I think the film is set before this social media boom, so to speak, where social media became to have a a profound influence in our lives, an outsized influence. Yeah, but it seems like every time social media is is hinted or mentioned in the film it seems to have a, a positive effect because that's how they find the, each other and that's how found bob wells and their community yeah well that's how um swanky gets back in touch with Fern and sends her a video yeah and presumably a lot of other people yeah i i have no i i don't object to i don't you know make it a point to stay off social media or or to like uh, reject social media i'm just not good at it like i don't know what to do i don't know how people how people are good at it it's just i just don't have the the patience to to post so often and and I don't know do everything like I don't know anyway I don't want to like I don't I don't hate on anybody who 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 uses social media extensively almost daily but I just I'm incapable of doing that yeah it, it's it's just time away from films and doing other stuff <laughs> exactly like I'd rather read someone's like I'd rather read someone's reviews or someone's blog where it's like a well formulated opinion. Not that blogs are immaculate in that way. There are plenty of terrible blogs, but at least you know, I, I there is plenty of things to do on the internet. It's not it's not like I don't spend time on the internet. I'm always on the internet, but it's there's so much better things to do. Anyway, <laughs> I, and that's whatever whatever that is good good for everyone. But one thing that I think Twitter is useful for, and just to get back to the movie, is for things like that for finding things. Like one thing that I use social media mostly Twitter. I've kind of given up Facebook and all that. But is for you know keeping up to date with what's happening. Like you know, whenever a new podcast that I'm listening to is updating something, they'll post on Twitter, and I'll know that they've released a new episode or a new YouTube video. 
that you know I I I I might have missed, but you know I'll go on Twitter and see see their feed and they say that 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 they release something new and oh that's great I or a new blog or whatever all all those things are very that's I think social media is very useful for and that's what the people the characters in this film use it for to to find out about what Swanky has been doing and the amazing places that she's been able to see or or when is the next RVR or whatever that thing is called that. Yeah. It has an interesting name the that uh, the 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 convention that Bob Wells has organized, Rubber Tram Rendezvous, R R T R. Okay. In in uh, Arizona. Yeah. No, oh yeah. Like this is how I keep up with what film festivals are doing. I've got a whole list of film festivals, and like that's how I get my news. <laughs> exactly. All right, and we should point out that the film, obviously, the reason we're talking about it is because the film is one of the best-received films of the year. It won Best Picture at the Oscars, Best Director, and uh, Best Actress for Frances McDormand. It, what else was it nominated for? Uh, I don't think it was nominated for screenplay, and I, I, that kind of, would kind of make sense because it's, I think it relies, I, I didn't read a lot about this, I don't know if you have, but I think it relies a lot of improvisation, especially from their non-professional uh, cast. Yeah, it seems like Francis McDormand's performance is a lot of ad-libbing, and there's an immediacy to the scenes, which seems like um, improvisation was used a lot. And the cast were given monologues, so one can assume that like this is a life story they told um, a few times, so they're familiar with it, as opposed to something Chloe Zhao wrote down. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that it kind of makes sense. However, one and uh, just to to be a little. Uh, Mostly as a joke, but one thing that I would say about this film's performance, and this is true for also Chloe Zhao's previous film, is that it suffers from what I call staring into the distance syndrome, because that happens a lot in this movie. <laughs> it's like landscape shots. Yeah, landscape shots, and they're just the characters staring blankly into the distance, thinking about stuff that we don't know about. I think this film does that a little <laughs> bit too much for my taste, and, and so does the, the writer. But, oh well, I guess it, it goes with the setting. Yeah, yeah, staring out into the American wilderness. Exactly, and reminiscing about better times, or worse yeah. <laughs> times, depending on who you ask. Hard times. <laughs> yeah. But in, in those categories, all of the films that I've seen, and I haven't seen a lot of them, I've seen Minari, I've seen Mank. I've seen The Trial of the Chicago Sega 7. I haven't seen Sound of Metal, so you can speak about that. And I haven't seen Promising Young Woman. But Nomadland was definitely deserved to win both the Best Actor, Best, Best Picture, and Best Director nomination. I haven't seen Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round, which was nominated for Best Director, ah. but it won... Was it Foreign Language? Yes, won the Best Foreign Language film. I was never big into him. I know him from uh, his Dogma 95 days with... Uh, Sir Festin. Yeah, the celebration. What was the other director's name? Uh, Lars von Trier. Lars von Trier. I've seen most of Lars von Trier films, but for Winterberg, I've only I've only seen a handful of his uh, of his films. So I'm I I would like to see another round because it's it's it sounds fascinating from the description, and I think I will probably enjoy it. Uh, but it, it, I'm not I'm not as familiar with the director, and I, I, from what I've seen, it's he's never giving me that much. <sighs> that much motivation to just to seek out most of his film he's not he, i'm not naturally drawn to him let's just put it like that uh, as for the rest of the films yeah. I'm, I'm curious to watch the sound of metal which i haven't seen yet i'm curious to watch promising young woman and i would also like to watch judah and the black messiah and i think those are the only ones that i haven't seen unless i'm missing something 
ah, Judah and the Black Messiah, I really want to see because like the history of the Black Panthers is like really underexplored. And what they did to help working class communities. I like to see that. Like I said, Minari was a pretty noteworthy film, but I honestly wouldn't even have nominated for Best Picture. I think it's it's definitely one of the better films of the year. Maybe that's that's what working in its favor is that it it didn't have that much competition this year. Um, but otherwise, or well, maybe I I'm okay with it being nominated as Best Picture, but not Best Director because there's nothing that stood out to me about its directing. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I thought I yeah. thought Minari was a fine film, but nothing groundbreaking. Um, although. Maybe again, maybe there wasn't just that much competition this year, uh, and that's it. I think I think the, the Nomadland was I think just following award season and following the rumors round. I think it was the clear winner for this year, so it's not at all surprising that it won the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs and the Oscars, and also which I had forgotten about this, and thankfully you wrote it down: the Golden Lion on the Venice Film Festival. Yeah, I've, that I think that was when we first started talking about Chloe Zhao. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, is there anything else that you think uh, uh, we we need to discuss about this film? Yeah, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, like I said, it's a it's a fantastic film. I recommend everyone watch it. I I will. There there are there are things to critique about this film and the films to dislike. Although they can perhaps be justified in that the, the film is in the film's intentions are not to focus on those things like especially kind of lingered onto the financial hardships and how we think the film didn't go over them too hard but but i fully recognize that that was perhaps not the intention of the film yeah it probably says more about us and um what we're contending with in our lives and again it's going to be what the viewer what the viewer brings with their own perspective yeah, and perhaps that's why it's a good film because it allows everyone to take something else out of it. Absolutely. All right. So that was it for this episode of Heroic Purgatory, this special episode of Heroic Purgatory where we covered the Best Picture winner of this year's Oscars, Nomadland. Next episode, we'll resume our, our usual schedule where we'll talk about what we were supposed to talk about this week, and that is Takeshi Kitano's 1997 Hanabi or Fireworks, uh, the winner, also <laughs> another Golden Lion winner uh, from 1997. Until then, we hope you have a good time. We hope you watch the films that we talk about. And please feel free to let us know of any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions that you might have either in the comments on Twitter or uh, through the contact form on our website. <laughs>